Hey, I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, I'd like to encourage you, we're going to read about 18 verses from a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. I'd like to encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't have one, if you didn't bring one. Um, you'll find this passage on page 351 in the Bibles that are in the seat rack near you. Um, it's uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, and there is a Bible app uh, event for this that has the text in there as well that you can use to follow along. Before we read that, though, I want to tell you about my buddy Willis, Okay. And some of you are smiling because, you know, Willis is my made-up name. I used to, I can't remember what my made-up name used to be, but then someone with that name started attending church and I had to change it, you know. Um, so uh, Willis and Wilma, they're the couple that I kind of use as my fictitious couple. Let me tell you a story about, about uh, my buddy Willis. He had a little bit of a problem, and it was between him and his wife, Wilma. And the problem was a marital problem. They were not getting along well. And it wasn't just one of those little hiccups that every marriage has. It wasn't even like we hit a speed bump and maybe we bent a rim he kind of felt like the whole chassis was going to go out from underneath his marriage. Uh, it was a real, a real bad thing. And Willis doesn't know who to talk to. He, he has some really good friends at work. Guys that he hunts with, he fishes with. They pal around all the time. They tell jokes. They tell stories. They're good guys. But he also knows that one of the products that they make at his plant, he, he works at a gossip processing plant. They make something else, but gossip is what they really specialize in. And so Willis doesn't feel like he can tell anybody at work. And he feels very much alone. He's thought about talking to his pastor about it. And he trusts his pastor. He has a great relationship with his pastor. He's known his pastor for a while. And, and, and yet, he's not going to talk to him about it. Because, frankly, it's just too embarrassing. And what will, what will his pastor think? He, He's been coming to church for years, and Wilma sits at his side. No, no, no. I'm not going to talk to my pastor about it. And Willis feels very alone. Willis has given some thought to telling his parents. You know, they're, they're good parents. They love him. They love his family. They always want the best for Willis. They've been those parents. But he knows this. He knows if he tells his dad, if he tells his mom about problems he's having with his wife, Wilma, that that might cause a rift in the relationship between Wilma and her father-in-law and mother-in-law that won't be repaired. Oh, man. I can't tell them. And Willis feels very much alone. You ever been like Willis? Maybe not with that specific thing, but with something going on in your life, you feel this sense of helplessness, and this helplessness begins to almost plant within you this sense of aloneness. You know, I I believe that the feeling of aloneness is a pretty universal human feeling. That everyone feels it from time to time. Did you hear that? Especially if you're a teenager, listen to this. Everyone feels this sense of aloneness from time to time. And if you're a teenager and you're dealing with that, and you don't have a decade or two of independent social experience, that can be really overwhelming to you. It can really kind of mess with your mind. Everybody feels it, though. Teenagers feel it. As you move into adulthood, you begin to to feel this, especially as you're moving through life's changes. You know, you've been single, and then you get married, and all of a sudden your single friends, they don't call you anymore to do the single stuff anymore. That makes sense, right? But here you are, you're newly married, and you can feel kind of abandoned, kind of alone. 
And then you're going through your marriage, you made some adjustments to that, and you have married couples that you get together with, and you enjoy going out for a burger or a hike or whatever it is that you like to enjoy, and then one of you has children. And that really ties you up at home. And there it is again. There's this sense of, I feel very much alone. It's common to the human experience. Even as you age and as you grow older, I've had so many different people say to me through my years of ministry, Pastor, I've buried all my friends. And I am alone. Alone. I want to say this to you. Those three words, I am alone. Those are a lie if you are a Christian. They are a lie. And and you would think that those who are more biblically grounded would be less likely to believe that lie. You would think that people who are seasoned Christians, you know what I mean by that? I've been a Christian for a while now, you know? You would think that they would be less likely to fall for a lie that says, I am alone, but research suggests otherwise. For example, Pastor to Pastor, which is a ministry of focus on the family, did a survey a few years ago, and they the survey was of pastors who, generally speaking, are seasoned Christians, biblically grounded men and women. This survey is of them, and in that survey, they found that 70% of pastors believe they are alone. 70%. Now, I want to say, I don't feel that way. One of two things is a reality. Either I'm in the 30% of pastors that have good friends, or I'm completely deluded and people are just putting up with me. Either way, I'm happy. (laughs) So it's good. But the statistic stands. If you take 10 people who are mature, hopefully, in Christ, who are grounded in the Word, who are seasoned Christians, seven of them will say, I am alone. What has taken root in their mind is a, is a pretty serious lie. And even though they are part of the family of God and have been so for a number of years, the lie stands. Now, I want you to hear this. This, this message is not for pastors. It's not about pastors. The reason I bring up the pastors is to say to you, if they have this struggle, chances are a lot of us in this room who occupy these chairs feel the same kind of a struggle and sometimes hear the lie and believe the lie, I am alone. And you can be very mature. You can be emotionally mature. You can be spiritually mature. You could be a leader. You could be a teacher. You could be a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a trustee, a deaconess, and you could still feel... I am alone. Here's my question. It's an easy question to ask. Why? Why do we feel that way? Why would us who are believers in Jesus and have a relationship with God through Jesus, why would we, ones who Jesus has said in the Gospel of John, I call you my friend. You're my friends. Why would we who belong to a group of people who the leader, Jesus has said, here's the two big commandments, love God and love each other. Why would we ever feel alone? And there are a lot of answers to that question. But one of them is, maybe we believed a lie. A lie that says we're alone. Now, the go-to story on this question of feeling alone 
is Elijah the prophet. I'm going to read 18 verses with you from 1 Kings chapter 19 about Elijah, but just let me give you some context here. Most of you, many of you know this. Elijah is a prophet in the Old Testament who serves the Lord during a time when the people of God are not worshiping God. There's a bad king and a bad queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And they like to worship a pagan god named Baal. Baal was a god of a fertility cult. I'm going to let you connect the dots on that. And I want to say to you, the fertility wasn't about growing wheat and corn. Okay? You got that? And so they were involved in this fertility cult that did things that were not just the, oh, a little risque. They were just wrong. They involved children sometimes. And, and, and God hated that. And Elijah hated that. And Elijah has been working and working and working to turn the tide on that. And, and nothing seems to be working. And finally, at this point in his life, Elijah sets up a challenge. And he says, okay, bring the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal, to Mount Carmel, and I'll come to alone, and we'll set up two altars. And on this altar, we'll put the stone, and then we'll have the wood, and then we'll have the meat. And we'll do the same over here, the stone, the wood, the meat. And, and then each of us will call on God. You call on your gods, I'll call on my gods. And the God who answers by fire, let him light the fire. That's the God we'll worship. Are you in? Well, of course. How do you turn down that challenge? It's like a gunfighter in the Old West. You can't stay in the saloon. You better get out there. So the prophets of Baal say, yeah, we're in. And they call and they call and they call and they call. Nothing happens. They cut themselves, cut their bodies in order to get Baal's attention. Hear us, Baal. Light the fire. Nothing happens. Elijah's my kind of prophet. He's my favorite. You know what he says? Maybe you should call a little louder. I'll bet he's sleeping. You think? Nothing happens. And then Elijah says, and by the way, it's a season of drought, but he says, bring water. And he pours water all over that wood, all over that altar. And then he says, God, do it. And fire falls from the sky. It consumes the wood. It consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the altar. Everything. Like that. I, I don't know if it was maybe, you know, somebody up in a Starship Enterprise or what was going on, but man, there it was. It hit it, right? Fire out of the sky. I know who it was. It was God. So that's kind of where we pick up the story. Immediately after that happens, there is this surge of emotional and spiritual fervor that says, those false prophets that are doing those horrible things, kill them. And they do. They kill the prophets of Baal. The priests of Baal are put to death by the sword. Now, let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 19. I'm going to read these 18 verses. Follow along as I read. Now Ahab and Jezebel, um, now Ahab told Jezebel rather, everything Elijah had done and how he killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, and listen to her words, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now here's a weird sentence. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat under it and prayed that his life might, might, that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. 
Take my life away, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was some bread and some hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then he laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up, for the journey is too much for you. So he ate and drank, got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And a word of the Lord came to him. I love his sentence. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. Okay, hear that phrase. I'm alone. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains, tore the mountains apart, and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And then, after the fire came, and I love the King James word here, a still small voice. <laughs> wonder what it said. The NIV, more contemporary translations say a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled off his, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very jealous for the Lord God Almighty, zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, also anoint Jehu of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mahalah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escapes the sword of Jehu. Now look at verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bound down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. You're not alone. You're not alone. Now, I want you to think about this story for a moment. I want to say to you that Elijah isn't just my favorite prophet. He's probably the second best prophet of all time. I said to Laurel, who do you think is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? And she named a few, and she didn't mention Elijah. She was thinking prophets who wrote books of the Bible. And I think she's right. Those are great, great men. Um, I, I said, I think Elijah is like second best, because I know Moses is the best. Because it says there'll never be another prophet like Moses until Jesus comes in the New Testament. So I'm going to give Moses the number one seat. But I'm giving Elijah the number two seat for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is this. Who shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is there? Moses and Elijah. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Who was caught up in, in the chariot, in, into the sky in a chariot of fire? Elijah. Yeah, he never died. That's pretty impressive. He was an impressive figure. But look at what he's doing. He's cowering. He's hiding. He's struggling. He feels alone. He's like seven out of ten leaders. I'm alone. Maybe he's like me and you sometimes. Do you ever feel alone? Now, I'm not talking about alone like good alone. Like, I just need some alone time. I wish these kids would get out of here. We all want that, right? I'm not talking about that. I am talking about do you ever wish that there was someone with whom you could share your heart 
as you walk this difficult path of life. You might ask yourself, where do these feelings of aloneness come from? And if you look at the life of Elijah, you would have to say, maybe they come sometimes from disappointment. I mean, here Elijah has sent up this grand showdown with the priest of Baal. Baal doesn't answer. God does. The priest of Baal have been disposed of. So if I were Elijah, I would think, now it's time for a party. I just did all the hard work. I'm riding into the capital city. I'll bet they'll greet me with with palms. I can't wait. This is going to be great. That's not what happened. Instead, the person whose name has become synonymous with evil gets in contact with him. It's in verse 2. Jezebel sends a messenger and says, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you're not dead just like all those people you put to death. Well, that'd be kind of disappointing. It's kind of hoping for something different than that. You can begin to feel alone when things aren't turning out the way you had hoped. For example, you thought you would get that job, that job that you wanted, that job you went to school for, that job that you applied for, and you don't. You feel alone. Or you thought your children would live well, and that doesn't happen. You're alone. Or or you thought that your health would hold up, but what is this thing that the doctor has revealed to me? And you feel alone. Because disappointment can make you feel alone. And if you notice something about those three examples I gave you, gave you all of them have in common just a little bit of a sense of embarrassment. Didn't get the job. I wasn't good enough. I'm embarrassed. I'm alone. I, my kids aren't doing well. I wasn't a good enough parent. I'm embarrassed. I'm alone. And now I got this thing and I don't want to tell anybody what the doctor just told me. And I'm embarrassed and I want to hide. I want to be alone, and I don't want these things paraded around. Disappointment can actually be a trapdoor through which we can fall into aloneness. There's other trapdoors. Another one I feel like Elijah was probably dealing with was just a sense of futility. Like, like when he realizes there's nothing can be done here, and he feels like he's in a lonely place. There's, there's no hope. And that feeling kind of enters our lives when we see the evil of the world around us. Who has not felt it this week in the news? But it's not just this week, right? Wars, famine, terrorism, poverty, child abuse, child neglect, drug pushers, school shooting, bullying, children without parents, parents without children, joblessness, poverty. All of these are social problems that you can feel alone because you might think to yourself, does no one else get bothered by this? Because this really bothers me. It's unjust. It's wrong. And if I feel like I'm the only one that senses that, like Elijah felt like he was the only one that sensed that, I can feel alone. I think a greater contrib- contributor to aloneness is a sense of futility that comes with feeling like things will never be right in your personal life. I'll just never have that relationship with my parents that I always wanted. And you feel alone. I will never be able to afford the things that I wanted to make a nice home for my family. And you feel alone. I'll never get, my children will never get their act together. And you feel alone. Now listen, those kinds of things are a consequence of living in a broken world. Do you hear that? You live in a broken world, stuff's going to happen. It's a natural consequence there. But I want to remind you that disappointment and hopelessness are some of the favorite tools of the enemy of your soul. 
And that sense of aloneness doesn't just come from living in, a, in an everyday world. Satan wants you to feel alone. Satan does not want you to have hope. And, and by the way, the, the battle that he fights with us is a very real battle. The scripture says our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It says that our struggle is against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and hear this phrase, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So Satan wants you to feel this sense of futility. He wants you to feel this sense of disappointment. He wants to separate you from healthy relationships where you can be nurtured. He wants you to believe that your friends don't care. He wants you to believe that you're alone in your pain. And he wants you to feel a need to hide because he does not want you to experience the nurturing community that God has provided for you. I just use the word community. Let me tell you how I mean that. We live in a community like Kerwinsville or Clearfield County. That's our community, and it's great to be part of that community. But there's another way you can think of the word community to say this group of believers that I get together with on Susquehanna Avenue are a different kind of community. It's a place where I can know some people and be known by some people. It's a group of people where I can show some love and I can receive some love. It's a place where I can serve with my friends and they can serve with me. It's a place where we can nurture one another, this community of believers on Susquehanna Avenue. And Satan wants to rob you of that blessing. Think about it for a moment. When you're in Elijah's state, what do you need the most? When you're feeling disappointment and and when you're feeling hopelessness, what do you need? One of the things that you need is to be with other believers who will encourage you. One of the things you need is nurturing in a community where other people care about your life and, and ask you how you're doing and talk to you about that. However, when you are in Elijah's state, what are you tempted to avoid the most? Oh, pastor, I wasn't at church Sunday. Sorry about that. I'll tell you, my week was so bad, I just felt such a sense of despair and hopelessness and loneliness, I couldn't get myself to go out. Wow! Did you fall for the lie? Did you ever fall for the lie? Right there. Right there. Because what you need the most when you're in Elijah's state is that community. But what you often do the most when you're in Elijah's state is flee. Flee into the wilderness, into a cave, and hide. And Satan knows that. He wants you to do that. He wants you to feel alone. He wants to separate you from the body of Christ because he knows that that is where you will find nourishment. And that is where you will find healing. You see, as someone who is trusting Jesus, the most it's very important to recognize the fact that you are never alone. Elijah was not alone. God was there. God actually follows Elijah into the wilderness. There he goes, Elijah, into the wilderness. Let's go. And, and he follows him. He's everywhere, so he doesn't literally have to walk. But you get the point, right? He follows him into a cave. In verse 9, he's in this cave all night and the word of the Lord comes. What are you doing here, Elijah? There's God. He's not alone. And, and then he shows him those things. Go stand out there and you know the wind goes by and the earthquake and, and the still small voice, that gentle whisper. What's it, what's it saying? I don't know what it's saying, but I have a feeling that what it's communicating is, you're not alone. You're not alone. He speaks the same words to Elijah in, in, in verse 13, when he says, what are you doing here? Why are you isolating yourself this way? 
You're not alone. You can run from God. You can try to hide from God. But here's the deal. God has promised never, never, never to leave you. You see the three nevers there? I put them there on purpose. You see, God didn't leave Elijah. He was there with him. God speaks later in Hebrews chapter 13. In the last sentence of verse 5, it says this. It says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That sounds good. That's easy to understand. I get that. If you're reading it in the Greek, which I don't know why you would ever punish yourself that way, but if you happen to be, you're going to find that this is the way it would be phrased. No, I will not leave you. No, nor forsake you. No, not, no, nor. Do you get it? Leaving you is something I will never do. You got that? Because I don't know how to tell you any more than to say no, not, no, nor. You understand? We would think that God is using bad grammar there, right? God's making an emphasis by four times in one sentence, putting a negative in there when it comes to leaving or forsaking you. He is always there for you. And so if you're that teenager and you're feeling that sense of aloneness, God is there. Whether you sense him or not, he is there. He's always with you. If you're that adult and you're feeling like, man, I just feel so alone. This world is so... That's a lie from the enemy. You're never alone. And God has people who are there to help you. Elijah has this idea, I'm the only one. There's almost a little spiritual arrogance there, isn't there? Just a tiny bit. And I don't want to criticize him because if Jezebel was after me, I'd feel that way too probably. But God comes to his side and says, I got 7,000. You are not alone, Elijah. Neither are you. God has people to help you, and he actually commands them to help you. He says to all of us, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in that way, you fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love God, love one another. How do I do that? I carry one another's burdens. I help people out. It's our job to do that. And people are there to do that, even when you don't see them even when you're not aware of it. Janine Bowman, I think I told you this. I preached to two different groups, so I never know who I told what. Janine Bowman said to me that she gets a card every day. She's homebound. She's pretty much deaf. But from people at Kermansville Alliance Church, she gets cards. Keep it up. Keep those cards and letters coming (laughs) for Janine, right? Yeah. She is not alone. You're not alone. Maybe someone hits you in Facebook and puts a stupid cat video on your feed. It's a way for you to know you're not alone. That text that you got, how's it going, buddy? It's a way for you to know you're not alone. That card that you got, hey, I'm going to thank you for this. That lets you know you're not alone. And even when you don't get those things, you're probably getting something far greater Tim Keller says it in chapter 2 of his book on prayer, that the greatest thing is prayer. And so people are praying for you. You're not alone. You're never alone. So you want to take advantage of God's provision, his presence and his people. That's his provision. Yeah, A friend of mine tells the story of uh, a time he was speaking at a conference for a church in Southeast Asia. And I haven't read this story for years. It was in one of his books. And uh, I honestly haven't looked at that book in 25 years. So I know I have the details wrong. But it's still a great story. So let me tell it to you. 
His name's John, and John went to speak to these Christians in Southeast Asia, and they were not wealthy. They paid him to come. They paid to fly him in, and they put him up in a grand hotel, a wonderful hotel. They never talked about meal provision. When John got there, he went straight from the airport into the car with the pastor who drove him to the hotel. He was dropped off there, and John realized, I don't have any money. I mean, I got American money here, but all I have is credit cards. And back in that day, you couldn't just use a credit card in Southeast Asia. And he didn't want to be a burden to the local church. And his wife had packed snacks, granola. That's not a snack, by the way, just letting you know, right? And and he also noticed when he was at the conference that there was fruit. So he'd pick up like an orange and stick it into his pocket and an apple and put it here. And through the week of the conference, that is what John worked, what he lived on. At the end of the conference, it was the last day, and, and as he walks out of his room, he looks, and there's the worship leader, who he's seen every night, just down the hall from him. And the worship leader said, John, I didn't know you were here. And he said, I didn't know you were here. He said, that's great. And the worship leader said, let's go have breakfast together. And John says, I don't have any local currency. And the worship leader says, there's a buffet. It's included. It starts at 6 in the morning. It closes at 10.30 at night. It's great. Have you eaten the food here? And John said, no. I never took advantage of the provision that was there for me. I've been starving. I've been starving. That applies to so many things, doesn't it? That's just a great, great story right there. You have been provided with the presence of God and the fellowship of his people. Enjoy them. Take advantage of God's provision and engage with your church family whenever you can. The author of Hebrews is writing not just to ordinary Christians. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are going to suffer great perseverance. And he knows that. And so the Spirit of God leads him to to write words that fit with you and me. Let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let's encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Make a commitment to yourself to connect regularly with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to connect deeply with them. To share what's on your heart with believers who you trust. Carrying heartache can be hazardous to your health. I think it was in the late 90s that some scientists uh, in Japan, I think it was, released a paper. I read it and I didn't read the paper, but I read the article in Psychology Today. It's one of those things, I kind of remember this. Let me Google it. Psychology Today is generally a well-respected publication. It's online. And they said that, you know, we used to use this figure of speech, he died of a broken heart. And they said, that's actually possible. It's actually possible. And so the pain, the sense of aloneness that you might carry around with you is something that can physically injure you and spiritually defeat you. So, Take advantage of God's provision. Engage with your church family and engage deeply because the wisest man who ever lived said that two are better than one because they have a good return for the labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Who also, if two lie down together, They can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The wisest man in the world is saying, you need to dismiss inclination toward aloneness and embrace people who will care for you.
you are alone. That's a lie. That's a deep, damaging lie that even seasoned Christians can believe. Elijah believed it. Seven out of ten pastors believe it. Do you?